this season that's called Advent. Advent is a word that means coming. It's the four Sundays prior to the uh, uh, Christmas when we celebrate Christ, uh, Christ's birth, Christ's coming, the Advent, his coming into the world. Um, and uh, no, we don't think Jesus was actually born on December 25th. We, we, in fact, we know he wasn't. But that's all right. That's, that's what we have done culturally for years. And, and, uh, and so we embrace this moment to celebrate it because it is a civilization-changing moment. It is a world-changing moment. And it's the moment and the opportunity for us to declare it loudly, to declare it as a community. Um, and so each of the Sundays before, the, you know, we, as, we traditionally, as the church, as the body of Christ for centuries, we are literally connecting with our brothers and sisters for centuries who have been, who have been having these messages of hope, this message of, uh, uh, of, of um, faith, the message of joy, the message of love, the four weeks prior to Advent, the coming up. Um, and, and we know that in Christ, all four of those things were fulfilled in him. You know, the world was in a very dark place for centuries. God didn't intend for the world to be in darkness. When he created us, he created us as literally the, a, a, a divine, a locus for the divine reflection. A place for him to reflect himself. All of his glory, all of his love, all of his life. And, and it went bad in the garden. It went worse at the flood. And finally mankind was just completely divorced, entirely separated from God at the Tower of Babel. And humanity had been Divorced, separated from God, wandering around blindly for centuries. And in, in, in the midst of that, in the midst of that darkness, God raised up a man, Abraham. We'll talk a little bit more about him later. Raises him up and says, listen, even though the world has, has rebelled against me fully and completely these three times and is divorced and separated, in you, Abraham, I'm going to start over. And through you, through your seed, the entire world is going to be blessed. The entire world. And we get this journey through Israel. It comes to a moment when, when uh, Israel had gone through so much, and we'll talk a little bit about it in a minute, gone through so much, they're sitting under the oppression of the Roman Empire, wondering, for 1,500 years, Lord, you've been promising, you've been promising. You've been promising Messiah, you've been promising deliverance. And in this dark moment of oppression, this dark moment of hopelessness, the young teenage girl says yes to the Lord. Yes, I will take the shame of the cross. I will bear the shame of becoming pregnant outside of wedlock in my society, which has the risk of being killed so that you could bring hope to the world knowing that I've done nothing but what's right. I will do what's right, even if it looks to the world like I've done wrong, in order to bring hope. And this is the, this is the, the call of the people of God to bring hope to the world. 
who allow the Lord to bring hope through us. There was an interesting text in the book of Chronicles. It says this, it says, Of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. Issachar. This is in First Chronicles twelve thirty two, And I, I'm going to tell you now, um, normally I have, you know, 200 slides. This morning I, I have one slide and it's hope. That's it, one slide and it's hope. So this morning is a little bit different. I, I just have to talk to you about what's on my heart. I've been burdened about this message for a while now. And the more I studied, the more I tried to prepare, the less I could come up with 150 slides. The more I was like, guys, get the message, not the slides. But the sons of Issachar, when David was becoming king, the sons of Issachar understood something. They said, David's our hope. They just went through civil war. They were fighting over who the next king should be. And the sons of Issachar stood up in their time and says, no, we know who the right king is. We know who the right king is. And they stood up among all of their brethren and said, we're, we are going to stand behind this. Why? Because they were able to discern their times. My question this morning, are we discerning our times? Are we discerning our times? Jesus said this, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were trying to figure out who in the world he was. And he says to them, he's talking to him, he says, in the morning it's going to be stormy. And when, when, when you see, you know it's going to be stormy. How do you know? Because you look up and you see the sky's red. And you say it's threatening. So you say, hey, we're going to have storms. He says, this is in Matthew 16, 33, if you want to write it down. He goes, I, he goes I, you really amaze me. The reason why you amaze me, how, how do you have the ability to look up at the sky and go, hmm, this is what's going to happen, but you can't look around you and know what in the world's going on. John the Baptist was wondering, Jesus, are you the one? And What did he say? The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are having the gospel preached to them. What do you think? Now see, what should they have discerned? What should the Pharisees and the Sadducees have discerned? See, because they've been hoping for this Messiah for, for 1,500 years. But in 603 B.C., this powerful ruler named Nebuchadnezzar comes down to Israel in three times, 605, 597, and again in, uh, uh, again in 586, comes in and literally carries out off that the kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, carries them off into exile, imprisons the king. They lost their temple. They lost their land. They lost their king. They lost everything. Complete hopelessness carried off into a foreign land. Why? Because of their disobedience. But God was setting something up. You know, as a result of that, synagogues were formed all over the world. The Bible left Israel and now got out all over the world. And there were communities of God's people all over the world. Then God raised up another empire. This was the Persian Empire. And he said, okay, enough is enough. And he returns the Israelites back to their land. And, and some of them, a small remnant, go back. And what do they do? They rebuild the temple. They rebuild Jerusalem. They restart the worship in the land. And they set up an environment of those who fight for the word of God. No matter what oppression comes. 
Go check out Maccabees. Go read about the, what the Greeks tried to do to them there and, and all that happened in them saying, no, we're going to stand for God's word no matter what you bring against us. And out of that, out of that was set up an environment, a community where Jesus could be born. But then another empire was raised up, and this was Alexander the Great. And, he, and, and this is all prophesied in the book of Daniel, by the way. None of this is happening outside of God's sovereignty. And he comes across the world and with fury conquers the world. And you know what he does? He establishes the world under one language. All of a sudden, the whole world speaks Koine Greek. And the Jews translate the Bible into the language of the people. It's called the Septuagint. So now the word of God can go out through in the entire world and everybody can read it. Everybody can know it. And the apostles come along and they write the New Testament in Koine Greek. And there's a language that's unifying the world in which they can understand God's word. Yet they went through terrible persecution from the Greeks. They went through terrible persecution in the land. Yet through that very thing, through the cross, God got his word to the world. And then after that, the Romans come along and they completely oppress the people of God. They choose who the high priest every, is every year. They lock up the priestly vessels. All of a sudden, you get, you get complete corruption in the priesthood. You get complete cor- corruption. You get fighting over who's going to be king over Israel because they're in love with the Romans. All this horrible corruption is going on in the land and people are crying out, God, where are you in all this? And at the same time, Romans build this entire infrastructure all over the world. Roads and mail systems and everything. A whole system where people can travel all over the world and reach everybody. And the gospel can be propagated. He says, I'm, I, I'm shocked that you can't discern the times. God has put the people of God all over this world. He's put the word of God all over this world. He's created roads so this can go everywhere. And now I'm entering into this world. What am I doing? The blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is being preached. How can you not see it? Talking to Luke. Sorry, Luke talking to to us, telling us about Jesus. The very week he was crucified, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and he's weeping. This is in Luke 19. It starts in verse 41. You can write it down, look it up if you like. When Jesus drew near, he sees the city. He looks at Jerusalem. He just starts crying. I want you to stop. Ignore the fact I'm reading scripture and think about Jesus actually crying over a city. Looking at a city and weeping. Jesus, he says, this is would that you, even you, Jerusalem, even you, the place God had chosen to put his name in all the world. If you had known on this day the things that make for peace. If you knew what would make for your peace. If you knew it. But they're hidden from your eyes. As a result, there's days that are coming. Your enemies are going to be set up like a barricade around you. They're going to surround you. They're going to hem you in on every side. And they're going to tear you to the ground. You and your children within. Because you didn't understand the times. 
They're not going to leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time. You did not know the time. You made the assumption, we're the people of God. God wouldn't destroy his land a second time. Jesus weeps. Why is he weeping? Because Jerusalem's blind. What are they blind from? John tells us in the beginning of his gospel. The light of the world came into the world, and people love darkness more than light. Light was standing right there. They didn't recognize their own. Couldn't see him. Would we recognize Jesus if he came and stood among us today? Would we recognize him? Light had come to darkness. Life had come to conquer death. Love had come to overcome fear. How do we live our lives? Do we live our lives in light or darkness? Do we live our lives in life? Or death, fear, or love. You see, we are in a civilizational moment. Right now, we are literally in a civilizational moment. If you want to read about this, I recommend a scholar, believer, an eminent scholar on the subject. His name is Oz Guinness. He grew up, he was literally born in China right during the Chinese Communist Revolution. So he's seen the worst that man does to man. He's an amazing scholar, and he's, interestingly enough, as he writes about these things, he's also the man of the greatest hope. But he says this, and he's quoting multiple scholars. This isn't just one view. There are multiple historians, multiple scholars. Says right now we're in the middle of a civilizational moment. What's a civilizational moment? It's the moment when a civilization loses touch with its central inspiration and dynamic. The moment a civilization loses touch with the very thing that created it. Guys, we're in a civilizational moment. We have completely, as a society, as a civilization, lost touch with the very thing that has created us. He says you've got three choices. We either renew it, we replace it, or it falls. We renew it, we replace it, or it falls. That's it. Just the fact of the matter is, we literally live in the greatest civilization in the history of mankind. And what do we mean by greatest? Very simple. There is no other civilization that has done more influence in influencing the world for good ever, anywhere than the civilization that was established through Christianity in the Western world. That's not the message you hear in school today. That's not the message you hear on media. That's not the, nobody's telling you that. Why? Because we're in a civilizational moment that wants that to decline. That's the enemy standing at our gate. We're going to talk about it. This, was a, this is a secular historian who says this, William Edward Hartpole Leckie, W-E-H Leckie secular pre, pre, a preeminent historian. He said, the simple record of three short years of active life, the simple record of three short years of active life, talking about Jesus Christ, has done more to regenerate and soften mankind than all of the investigations, the disquisitions of philosophers, and all the exhortations of moralists. 
Here is someone who has discerned the times, who can look at Jesus Christ and can look at what the church has done through him throughout the world and said he has done more to change humanity than anybody ever, anywhere. And most of us Christians are just glad we have our salvation because we're going to get out of here and let the world go to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, we're in a civilization where I recognize all the evil. That's why I got saved, so I can be gone. You know why you got saved? You got saved because you have inherited something from people who have gone before us. This is what Hebrews 11 is all about, the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. The great cloud of witnesses who who were witnesses in their generation in their time, who discern the times and says, we are going to carry forward what has been handed to us. Are you and I actually intentionally willing to carry forward what's been handed to us? Now, for a few minutes... Let me, let me just throw this out there because I want to know in what ways has Jesus actually changed this world? We went from a world, an ancient world, a Roman world that celebrated the slaughter of a million Gauls and the enslavement of a million Moors to calling that evil and wrong. We went from a civilization that threw their babies on a dump heap as the Romans did to actually picking up those unwanted children and raising them as our own. We went from cheering gladiators from fighting to death to a monk standing in the middle taking the spear himself so that it would stop. We went to learn that husbands are to respect and honor their wives and wives are to cherish. uh, I mean, husbands are to be respected and honored by their wives and wives are to be cherished and loved by their husbands. Children are to be given the full dignity of their humanity. That no one in society is above another person in society. That all humans have a divine locus created in God's image of infinite value and worth. Which, by the way, means you have a cardinal role and responsibility in this world. We learn that you don't leave your enemy on the battlefield, but you you bind up his wounds and tend to his life like you do your own. You feed the hungry, you clothe the poor, you heal the sick, you welcome the stranger, you visit those in prison, and you share with those in needs. That's the heritage we've been given. That's the inheritance we have. Oh, yeah, we like to form all kinds of societies and things like the, you know, the, the um, UN Council on Human Rights. Where did that come from? It didn't come from the world. We have great enemies, and I'm going to quote Jesus about our enemies. They've set up a barricade around us. They've surrounded us. They've hemmed us in on every side. They want to tear down the ground. They want you, and they want your children. They are willing to not leave one stone upon another. The only question is, do we recognize the sign of the times? Now, 
We need to understand the spiritual spirituality of what's going on here. But our problem is, is we tend to spiritualize these threats the wrong way. It is true that the enemy we face is not physical, it's spiritual. How many know that? Paul said it this way. This is in Ephesians. Oops, went the wrong way. That's really funny. I put down a different verse. He says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. He says, the devil has schemes and he's planned them out. In other words, what he's saying is there are spiritual forces that literally are scheming how to destroy God and anything that represents him. He says, those spiritual forces have powerful um evil representatives. They're principalities, they're powers, they're spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. They're rulers. He's talking about geographically. Now, the question is, is how do they actually operate? Is spiritual warfare when we stand there and and shout against them? Now, there for sure are moments in which we're going to be called to deal directly against spiritual forces. That happens. We pray against them in our lives. And and, and praying for others. However, the greatest manifestation of our spiritual enemy is to blind humanity. Jerusalem was standing there blinded when Jesus was standing right in front of them. The greatest manifestation of the enemy is to blind humanity. Here it is in 2 Corinthians 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Which is the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what are these enemies? I'm going to hit them briefly. These are some of the enemies that literally stand in our society today. Now, I want us to understand something. As Jesus is sitting there talking about the enemies that are coming against Jerusalem, notice he doesn't say, you have spiritual forces standing here trying to keep you from seeing me. No, he says your enemies literally are going to come and literally physically tear down your gates. They're going to take your children. They're going to take your land. They're going to destroy you. It's fascinating to me. Because he's not sitting there saying, well, you need to apply the four spiritual laws to overcoming anxiety. Look, are there things in scriptures we need to apply to do those things? Yes, absolutely. But when they replace the fact that we have lost how we are to be hope in the world, where have we come to? We have enemies right now called uh, uh, enlightenment secularism. Anybody heard of that? What does it say? We don't want God. We don't need God. We can replace God. What it does is what? It literally is a cut flower Uh, 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 secularism. It says it borrows from Christianity all of the foundations of Christianity but denies the God who has given us that. We don't want God. Why? Why do we not want God? We don't want God because it looks at all the ills that the church and all the failures of the church and everything we've done wrong and says that's what God actually is. Is that what God actually is or is that just our failure? It says we don't, we, 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 we don't need God. Why? Because we'll just take all the morals from that and create human flourishing. The problem is, is what they actually are giving is self-sufficiency. They're making man God. And where you get with that is destruction. 
And we can replace God. How? Because we don't need God for answers anymore. We have science. And by making science the answer to everything, it literally cuts off meaning, purpose. How how does it cut off meaning and purpose? Well, I'm going to go into my lab, and I'm going to prove you're an ape, and then I'm going to come over here, and then, and then in my, in my uh, uh, university and, and accuse you for acting like an ape. You don't think that's real? In the 1960s, God died. In the 1990s and the 2000s, when our corporations acted like God died, we put them in jail. Guys, this message makes a difference, not Does it make a difference eternally in our lives? Yes. Do we need to get the message out? Do we want to see anyone ever be eternally separated from God? No. But the way that happens is we make a difference in this world, demonstrating the love of God in this world. Not holding on because we got ours, waiting for God to change everything. Jesus is going to come back and make it all better. Because that's the heritage that got us here. We have another enemy. These enemies, by the way, if you want to read more detail, I'm just giving a a highlight. What we have become from secularism is a cut flower society. What is a cut flower society? It's very simple. What we do is we take flowers and we cut them off from their root. And then we bring the flowers and we go secular, secular society says, look, smell, I've got flowers. See how beautiful they are? See how pretty they are? Won't that be great? Isn't that awesome? And they give you these flowers. The problem is they have no root. So what they give you now dies. It rots. It looks good. When we have the root, that's where it got the root. We need to be telling the story of the flower and the root. Anyway, like I said, Oz Guinness is is where I've got, uh, uh, you want to read about this in much more detail than I'm going to. He says, we're facing three waves right now. Three waves, a war of the worlds of ideologies, philosophies, if you will, the enemy blinding the world to blind them to God to bring it in here. And how does it manifest? He says, three waves. It manifests in a red wave, a rainbow wave, and a black wave. A red wave, a rainbow wave, and a black wave. Red wave, this is the only country in the world where red is right. Everywhere else, red is left. Everywhere else, red is left. It's talking about socialism. Now, why? It's talking about Marxism. And in this country, it's called cultural Marxism. What is Marxism? Marxism says that there is no God. All there is is power. And I can lie to you and do whatever I want in order to take power from you. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to use all of your emotions from what you look at as wrong in the world and oppressions in the world, I'm going to use those to get you on my side so I can take power. That's what happened in the Russian Revolution, the anarchists and the Marxists. That's what happened in the Chinese Revolution. That's what happened over and over. That's what's going on in this country right now. If you think That's literally what's behind CRT. But here's the problem. The problem is, is you have to connect the dots to know it. And I've heard this a couple of times now. It's mind-boggling that we don't actually take the time to understand the roots of what it is we're being fed. 
because the roots of it are very clear. Uh, I'm going to suggest one book for you. It's by Noel Maring. It's called Awake, Not Woke. Noel Maring, Awake, Not Woke. And she lines it out. This is very, very clear. Their goal is to destroy God in society. Because God represents the opposition to what to the power they want to hold. Whether that's culturally, whether that's economically. The rainbow wave. Literally, that didn't start in the 1960s with the sexual revolution. You can literally go back to the 1920s, and they actually have it in writing. It's in writing. It says that. Our goal is to destroy family and church. That's what's behind it. Love is love. It's not what's behind it. That's how we're deceived into accepting it. Its goal is to destroy the family and destroy the church. Look, look this up. Do you know what it desires? How does it do it? It desires androgyny. Anybody heard the term androgyny before? Nobody? How about non-binary? Anybody heard that term? You know... Androgyny, non-binary, is an ancient pagan religion. And its goal is literally to set up a single religion across humanity. And its enemy is the family and the church. Why? Because you open up the Bible and the very first thing it says is we're binary. We are male, we are female. Period. It says there is a right and there is a wrong. Period. It says there is truth and there are lies. Period. The third wave, the black wave, is Islamic radicalism. Now this doesn't go back to Muhammad. This actually goes back to the 1930s. And I'll tell you when it goes back to. It literally goes back to when Hitler invited the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem to come to Berlin, and the two of them were in cahoots to wipe Israel out. To wipe all Jews out. It's why we're listening to 50,000 people in one city crying from the river to the sea. That's not every Muslim. In fact, the, the fact of history is... Jewish communities, the largest Jewish communities in the world prior to 1947, prior to them coming to America, were in the Islamic countries for centuries. But we don't know our history. We can't discern our times. We don't recognize what the enemy is doing to blind people. And then evangelicals buy into the emotions and stand up and shout. And promote these waves. James Lloyd Bryce in 1900, he said this. He said, if Europe loses its tradition, I mean, if if Europe loses Christianity, It still has deep, deep, deep tradition and social cohesion. But America has no deep tradition. America has no social condition, uh, uh, um, um, 
cohesion outside of its religion. So if religion ever declines in America, it will have been the completest revolution of all. He wrote that in 1900. 1900. 1900. Not last week. He's not reading the headlines. We have it. We literally have a cultural revolution that's going on that says what? There is no truth. Nothing is decidable. We're post-truth. I hear it all the time. We're post-truth. We're post-modern. We have complete moral corruption. Up, uh, what is up is down. What is down is up. We are topsy-turvy. We are literally on, on the, the, the brink of social collapse. What holds you together when there's no religion? Let's just take one controversial subject. School shootings. We got to get rid of guns. We got to get rid of guns. Is it the guns killing? Or is it people who have grown up learning there is no God, God is dead, there is no morals, there is no truth? And here's an interesting fact for you, because we hear there's more guns now than there ever used to be. Do you know actually per capita there's not? We never hear that one. You won't ever hear anybody that one. Per capita there's not. Isn't that interesting? Look, this is not a political message. This is the message of hope. Why? Because God said, or Mordecai said to Esther, right now, Esther, you need to discern the signs of the times. Haman has worked in cohorts with the king to sign our death certificate. Do not think because you're hiding in the court that you're going to escape. He said, how can you not know? How can you not know? God put you in that very position so that you could bring salvation. Because listen, Mordecai says, here's my faith. God's going to bring salvation. God is going to be sovereign. He is going to bring his hope into this world. The only question, the only question is what part are you and I going to play in it? Now couple that with one other thought. All of us have heard the scripture. Jesus is hanging on the cross. One of his last words, they, they take and try to give him sour wine. They're putting sour wine up to his mouth. And he rejects it. And as he rejects it, he cries out, it is finished. He breathes his last and he dies. At the single most hopeless moment for all of his followers, Jesus is declaring victory. At the darkest hour, Jesus is declaring victory. Now what's fascinating to me is if it's actually finished, what does he mean? Because I see a whole lot of work that still needs to be done. What has finished 
is he now has the opportunity to pour the Holy Spirit out on the entire world so that we could no longer have to go to the temple. We can be the temple. We can carry the temple of God anywhere we are, everywhere we are. We can go around the world and proclaim that Jesus Christ has come. He's going to return and we need to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And if you don't, you will find yourself his enemy. What's fascinating to me is that he has literally, literally left the salvation of the world in your hands and mine. He is expecting you and me to change the world. We don't do it alone. We we obviously have the power of the Holy Spirit. It's about hearing his voice and learning. That's what discipleship is about. It's about learning how to grow close to Jesus and hear his voice and walk in all of these things. But if you don't even understand what in the world it is you're doing to begin with, why in the world would you commit to it? The end of World War II. After all of the Holocaust, all of the bombing, Germany was just in an absolute mess. It had now been divided. The, the Soviets had eastern Germany and western Germany was left to the west. And all of the incredible uh, uh, structures and, and society that Germany had actually, I don't know how many people are aware of this. Germany was one of the most ascendant nations on the world prior to Hitler. I mean, the culture that was there, just completely decimated and bombed. Billy Graham has this opportunity to visit Conrad Adenauer. Conrad Adenauer was the chancellor of West Germany at the time. He had been put in prison by Hitler. He had been the former mayor of Cologne. And when he came out, he's one of the greatest statesmen the world has ever known. Because he had to rebuild Germany after that mess. How do you bring the humility and leadership at the same time? Look at his life. And he's sitting there, he's talking to Billy Graham, and he looks Billy Graham in the eye, and he says, Mr. Graham, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Ask him that. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Billy Graham looks at him, he's completely surprised. He looks back and says, of course I do. I know. Had an hour. Right there in the midst of bombed out buildings. Complete decimation of humility, the, 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 the complete uh, uh, humiliation of realizing the depth of, of, of evil their nation had gone to in the Holocaust. Turns to Billy Graham and he says this. He says, outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I don't know of any other hope for mankind. Do you know that hope? Do you know that hope? Today's the day of hope. We, of all people on earth, have that hope. We have that hope. We have that hope. Are we living like it? You know, we prayed earlier, you know, some of the things that we're going to be coming out with. Listen, it's not about a vision we give you. It's about us equipping you to have the vision of God in your life. It's not about us giving you a program to volunteer for. 
It's about you and I deciding I am an ambassador for Christ. I'm going to bring Christ to the world around me. That's how the West had the greatest influence in all the world. That's how Lecky stands back and says that, that what Jesus did there in that little place, in that little time, dying on the cross, that's how it changed the world. How many of us look at our salvation the way Paul looked at his? The world can know. The world, the, the world can be unblinded. Oh, my goodness. The world needs to know that. Last story and we'll close. About 4,000 years ago. After the third rebellion, after man had been completely divorced from God and walked away in the garden in mankind's dead. Man got so corrupted, God had to cleanse the world from the flood. And then, in the very living memory of Noah, mankind rebels yet one more time at the Tower of Babel, embracing Complete rebellion to God, and God divorces himself. That's it. I'm done. It's over. No more. Divorces himself in darkness and completely covers the earth. And then he goes to the land of Mesopotamia. The Spirit of God, literally Abraham sees him. He shows up, and he appears to Abraham. Is Abraham, I want you to leave all this, and I want you to go into a new land, because you're the seed of hope. You're the seed of hope. Now, get, I want to see it the full picture. Abraham was very wealthy. He had all kinds of servants. He had all, all kinds of animals. Abraham was 75 years old. He was in a 20-something with no family, no cares of the world. He literally had every reason the world would say why not to go. Look, Lord, you know, let me just support some young guy. He said, Abraham, listen, I want to give you the adventure of your life. And here's the thing. You're not going to see the fruit of it in your life. I want to give you the adventure of your life. Leave everything and come follow me so that I can start this world over and through you change the world. You see, we do live in a society that has taken every, all the roots of Christianity and cut them off and offers flowers. But do you know what we have? We have packets of seeds. We have packets of seeds, and that's hope. My prayer this morning is that we will do absolutely whatever it takes to figure out how to start planting seeds in the way God's called us. Amen.